So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, folks, and welcome back to First Bite. All right, so today's episode is an outgrowth of love and y'all a whole lot of patience because Zencaster was making bad choices. So this is like take 428, but they're wonderful and patient. Okay, then back to the outgrowth of love. Let's be honest. We need to put more good in the world. 
And I had a young lady tell me just recently that she felt so alone in the world of speech language pathology because there was limited representation of SLPs that came from her Indian cultural and linguistic background. This is a drastic oversimplification of an incredibly open and raw moment, one in which my heart broke for her because you know what? She's right. And y'all, that sucks. So I did what I could in the moment, and I introduced her to my dear friend, Sujata Kamath, MSCCC SLP, the SLP host of Full Prefrontal, a podcast dedicated to executive function. But I wanted to do more. I wanted to help more. So I put that thought onto the side and I nurtured it for a while. I was just waiting on the right door to open. And y'all, oh my goodness, it opened and then some because honest to goodness, two weeks later, I saw a suggested Facebook page like pop up on my Facebook feed and it was the Made in India SLP podcast. And I knew it was divine intervention. Trust me, I told the young lady all about it, and I promptly reached out to today's guest, Rabab Rangwala, PhD student at Northwestern University and a lab focusing on dysphagia under the mentorship of Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, who, like, I fangirl Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, so like, and then Kettery Fatra, CCC SLP, an SLP practicing in the Bay Area of California, and y'all, they said yes. So make sure you do go check out Made in India SLP podcast because it's wonderful. But also, ladies, thank you so much for coming on. My heart is so full and I am so grateful that we could do this like on repeat, you know, like a lot. So thank you. <laughs> of course, uh, you are so welcome and we are so excited to be here. Um, Again, yes, Dr. Martin Harris is like a dream come true. I think my boyfriend's slightly jealous about how much I'm in, like in awe of her. I talk about her way too much. Uh, and um, yes, I think that this is a subject and a topic that's very close and very important for Kennedy and I, especially given our backgrounds. And we are hoping to help make a difference in the speech language pathology world. And it's about time, in my opinion, in my very <laughs> humble opinion. Yes. 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 Okay. All right. So then let's take it from the top. Who wants to introduce themselves first and then tell me how you got into the world of speech pathology and then how you came here from India? So we, I, want, I want all the story. Okay. Go for it, Kennedy. Um, in India, the schooling system is a little bit different than how it is here. So after you pass your high school, you directly um, get like, um, have you guys have GED? No, no, that's wrong. It's not GED. Anyways, whatever's the SAT equivalent, we give some other exam and, um, and you directly start your own, um, your own specialty. So after 12th grade, uh, Rabab and I started studying audiology and speech language pathology. So um, right out the gate? Like, right at the gate um so at 18 you need to know what you're going to study because um that's how it is so four years we studied um we got our bachelor's of science in audiology and speech language pathology and um once i was done i kind of knew that something was missing in my um education like i felt like there was this lag between evident evidence-based practice and like um and the research 
like I felt that that was not being carried over in my own practice. Um, so that's when I decided that I wanted to get my master's um, in communication sciences and disorders. And that's how I came here. Like I went to grad school in Arkansas in University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just laughing because of all of the continental United States. And I have dear friends from Arkansas, but still at the same time, this is where we landed. Okay. Right. It was God's plan, I guess. Um, but um, it was this perfect, perfect uh, program for me. Um, it was perfect fit. I had amazing faculty, supervisors, and really supporting classmates. And they really shaped me who I am right now as a clinician. It's just those experiences. So yeah, and right now I'm in the Bay Area and I work in uh, pediatrics and geriatric subacute settings. That's amazing. Okay, so from India to Arkansas to Bay Area, which is like astronomical living expenses, by the way. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, and then Rabab, how, tell us your story. Um, just like Kinnery, I did my undergrad education in India, in Bombay. There, fun fact, there are two Kinnery, I think two speech-language pathology schools in Bombay. Kinnery went to one, I went to one. So we knew everybody knows each other. It's it's India. Everybody knows each other. Um, and yeah. Um, so I came, um, I was very happy in India, in the clinical world, and then UT Dallas just came out of the blue. I applied and I got in and I was over the moon, which is why I came here for grad school. After that, I moved to California too. And I worked in an outpatient and inpatient setting in a medical center. Um, I'm very passionate about evidence-based practice, especially in the dysphagia world, which is why, um, no surprise, I'm working with Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris in her lab, uh, doing my PhD at Northwestern University now. Um, yeah, I've worked with Dr. Anusha Sundarajan at San Francisco State, focusing on voice therapy in the transgender population. And that's been something that's been really interesting for me as well. Apart from speech therapy, um, I'm a very firm mental health advocate and also a very firm ice cream advocate, if that's even a thing. For people who don't <laughs> like ice cream, don't think we can be friends. But yes, that's pretty much about me. That's awesome. That is, you know, if you're going to have a stance making sure that we advocate for ice cream and evidence-based practice and dysphagia and mental health, I think those are three really good strong stances. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh, that's awesome. I, I don't have a comeback for this. I have nothing to expand on that way. Okay. So I like how I giggle so hard. I have to take my reading glasses off and now I have to switch this over to questions and like, I can't read them. So let me blow up the screen really quickly. Okay, so right. this this whole conversation came about, and y'all truly were an answer to a prayer because this young lady came into my office and and she said she felt so alone. And I am a pasty white girl who got sunburnt to almost the third degree level watching my boys play soccer this weekend. It is legitimately like uh, a, I had to bust out my burn cream oh to offset God. the sunburn. Oh no! But 
I, I, yeah, it was bad, right? I just flashed the ladies, my sunburn. Everybody listening missed that, but trust me, they, they witnessed it firsthand. But this is, um, I represent over what, 94%, 97% of my colleagues. That's the, and, and so when she opened her soul about feeling isolated, I was like, okay, there's something that we can do. We can, we need to increase cultural awareness, cultural competency, as well as um, how to take that into consideration when working with um, our patients that come from different cultural backgrounds, right? And I've, I've only ever had the pleasure of working with just a handful of, indi- of individuals that have an Indian background because of where I live. This is just not... Um, it's Columbia, South Carolina. We are not culturally diverse in Columbia, South Carolina. Although we do do, um, we do have a lot of good ice cream. So, Rabob, you, you, there is that. <laughs> Excellent. But can y'all talk to us about what are steps that we as SLPs can take to ensure that we make comprehensive speech language evaluations for feeding and for swallowing to incorporate and embrace cultural differences and to be culturally sensitive? Um, I do want to start by saying um, something and like a disclaimer that we are no specialists in cultural competency. You are just two brown girls uh, trying to make a difference, trying to advocate for patients who are especially people of color. And something that we think that is a job responsibility of any medical professional, and that includes speech language pathologists as well. Um, So we are just sharing our views. um, And maybe some people might agree, some people might disagree. And that's how we have conversations and change things. So that's perfect. Um, So... As a clinician, I think one of the most important things for us to remember is cultural humility, which means essentially that you are accepting of various things, of ways of thinking. And the acceptance is maintained through examination of our own biases. Everybody has a bias. It's something that's an ingrained human quality. And over the years, I've learned that it's okay to have a bias as long as you're aware of it and you keep it in check. So whenever you're working with a culturally diverse patient or family, be open to hearing what they have to say. Understand what their beliefs are, what they are sharing with you. Um, Just be a good listener. And as you move forward, you need to have some basic knowledge of how to select an appropriate tool. That would be in evaluations, in treatment sessions, Are they bilingual? Are they multilingual? Are they understanding your instructions? Like if you're giving dysphagia therapy exercises, you do not want them to misunderstand and go home and try different exercises or have a diet consistency that doesn't work well for them. Um, It is our duty as a clinician to make sure that we communicate well. We are communication specialists. So that's pretty much what we have to do with our patients, just because they come from a different, almost like from a different world, doesn't mean that it doesn't, that they don't fit in our world. We just need to 
make our world a little bit more broader, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, yeah, especially um, now coming to like assessments, when we're assessing um, children who come from a different culturally and linguistic um, linguistic background, if you're providing any accommodations or modifications, um, it's just so important that we're documenting that uh, what modifications were used. Um, for instance, I like to give extra time. So I, re- I always make a note of like extra time provided. And now um, based on the geographic location um, where a various school district is located, there may be certain guidelines in place relating to the culturally and ethnical um, considerations that you wanted to, um, that they, um, that they ask you to uh, place um, when assessing a diverse child. Um, so uh, a few years ago um, in the Bay Area, um, a certain school district came under under the public eye uh, because they were over-diagnosing certain children from uh, African, African-American ethnic groups with speech and language disorders. So they were over-diagnosing them. And that's... Um, that is one of the um, reasons why even in 2006, the Individuals with uh, Disability Education Act came in. So um, they actually took a great initiative to address the inappropriate identification and disproportionate representation by race and ethnicity of the children with disabilities. So, um, uh, so what they're asking us to do is like as a self-based, it is, um, they ask us to use or utilize a test form that uh, we think will provide the most accurate information on the culturally, linguistically, and diverse child's knowledge on what he can do academically, um, developmentally, and even functionally. So um, uh, also what I have seen in my practice, and also there's so much research that backs this up, that, um, that you get more, uh, more, more information on the child's uh, speech and language skills when you're interviewing them in a more natural setting rather than one-on-one basis. So um, this is something I used to do a lot too. Um, I'll, I'll use a certain test form or a protocol, and then uh, we would like go out at, to the playground and I'm still collecting data. So um, I'm still testing their speech and language skills, but uh, but again, in a more controlled and a more uncontrolled environment. So um, that is something I have been doing. And I guess um, if you're a SLP um, who's working with um, kids who are CLD or um, uh, who come from a CLD background, uh, maybe you can also give it a try. Um, apart from that, uh, dynamic assessment is always good. Like you constantly want to keep assessing uh, what's happening. Ethnographic interviewing is also useful. And uh, one thing is there, um, the families, if they're involved or whoever's involved in the child's care, just um, just let's make sure that it's a team approach and they are also involved in the discussion. Um, because a lot of the times, a lot of information gets lost in transition. So just having everybody on the same page is also important. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay. So folks, what she's talking about is the difference. And I'm going to take it all the way back for us for grad school between criterion reference and norm reference test. When we're pulling like a criterion reference test would be like the Rossetti. I love the Rossetti. Full disclosure, totally biased. I love the Rossetti, right? I don't get a standard score with the Rossetti when I administer for it with my children, but I get a developmental age, right? So I'm getting like a scaled score, not a standardized score that says, hey, this child's mastered this skill set between like six to nine months of age. But with a norm reference test, you're getting the standardized score. And that's problematic because we have to call into question um, two keywords here, specificity and sensitivity. And what they do is they say whether or not they accurately identify a child with a disorder and do they accurately identify the children without the disorder. Okay, so the catch is most of the standardized assessments that we use are normed on suburban middle-class white children, specifically middle-class boys. This is not the makeup of our nation. So I love that you talk about like the dynamic assessment because that and, and getting out on a playground because when we when we actually give a comprehensive assessment, yes, the insurance companies typically want that standardized test scores. The insurance company want to see that score because that's unfortunately at the end of the day what they often qualify for, right? Like especially if you're utilizing an assessment with like a school age child and um, they need to have like so many standard deviations below the norm. However, the school policy and those policies are licensed and what we are held accountable to trumps that, right? We have to do what's best by the patient and getting a um, an MLU analysis, seeing what the language looks like and doing that comprehensive parent assessment, all of that plays into getting an actual picture of what the child can do. So I would recommend... Um, uh, that if it's appropriate for the child's age, get a routines-based interview, like reach out and like question the parents and find out what's going on. And if you need to do that with an interpreter, then we need to find an interpreter. Sometimes that's readily available. Sometimes it's not, but um, make sure that you put a comprehensive write-up and you explain any of the, uh, how you got your interpretation of what the child's current performance is. Um we just had we just had this debate like with I we just talked about this with my students and I'm like no but like we 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 can't just do one test we have to get like multiple diagnostics because we're diagnosing a disorder. Yes, did you see me? I had to pull my sleeves up. I got all hot and bothered about that middle age hot flash. Right? <laughs> <Huzzah>. um, <laughs> okay. All right. So what else are we missing here? What about what about for a swallowing eval? Rabab, how can we be culturally competent for a swallowing eval? Well, um, so in my opinion, dysphagia is way more easier. Like I did not have to like worry about bilingualism and if I'm misdiagnosing because I'm looking at the anatomy and physiology, which is way more easier. Um, I don't know that MBS IMP though. That's no joke. So they're just saying. <laughs> uh. 
Yes. Uh, but coming from a culturally diverse and different point of view, you're you're seeing the same larynx. You're going to see the same base of tongue movement. So it makes things easier, which is why I think every uh, dysphagia clinician can easily be culturally competent. All you have to do is just learn a few sentences. And that's what I did. I learned from one of my mentors in grad school, where now I know like five sentences in Spanish that I need for speech, uh, dysphagia therapy. And it's so easy. Um, I will say that every time I say it, I think my patient smiles a little or maybe laughs at me. I don't think I'm going for the right accent with that. But I get my point across and that is what's important. Um, so open your mouth, stick out your tongue. I can do an oral motor examination in Spanish very easy. Um, the fact that I know English and uh, other languages as well um, helps me when I'm seeing anybody from a South Asian background. And as we know, um, individuals speaking Spanish are extremely uh, a big part of the U.S. culture. So you make your life way more easier instead of you are trying to tell them to open their mouth and they are not understanding what you're trying to say. So five sentences, if you want, write it on a piece of paper. We all know IPA, transcribe it, and then you can just go read it when you get up when you have a patient. It, it's, it's easy piece. Um, but do we know IPA? Because I don't remember IPA. I only treat panic piece dysphagia. So like I did once upon a time, but not anymore. Which is why you have to have a friend like Kinnery or someone who might know IPA. And then, I, I know IPA the the adult beverage. Yeah. <laughs> you know something. yeah, and in grad school, this is like the perfect time. Um, but of course, once you're in the clinical world, you can. These are simple techniques that you can figure out. Um, I also feel like it makes the patient way more comfortable. I feel like if they are someone who speaks only Spanish, it it's so easy for them. Uh, it, I feel like they're always nervous in a medical setting from what I've seen because they're lost, right? They're not understanding what everyone around them is talking. And if you enter their room and you're speaking a language they're familiar with, it, it's so easy. Um, something I've also tried to do in my therapy in the past is incorporating culturally um, modified foods. So if you're like doing pudding, right, you can easily find something in every culture that mimics the consistency of pudding. Um, hummus. Hummus is like pudding texture. Like you find I some... I love hummus. Oh my God, me too. So good. <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you can find things in every culture. Um, Kinnery and I have had this conversation a lot about if I have dysphagia when I'm 70 years old or 80 years old nobody dare give me applesauce to eat every day like I'm not <laughs> doing that like I want Indian food I, that's what I'm going to do in the last 10 years or five years of my life eat Indian food you don't want to feed them something that they cannot connect to and I feel and maybe I've been guilty of this at some points too so I consciously remind myself that food is also it's pleasure, right? It's a pleasure act of eating. I know we are so worried about aspiration and penetration and we want to keep them extremely safe, but don't take away the fun aspect. 
like make sure you yes you keep the quality of life um, so find something give them the itsy protocols they can you can trial consistent foods with them write down recipes it's it's possible which maybe it takes more hard work but we can't shy away from doing the right thing because we need to work harder yes so okay so folks i i every once in a while i get a wild hair at my butt and i do a therapy tip thursday right on our little like in- first bite Instagram account. And one of the things I have learned over the years, and we just talked about this with my students as well, is cultural competency in the kitchen, right? So think about your spice rack. I have, I have, um, I don't know why they call it a lazy Susan because I've only ever met one Susan and she was not lazy, but like, it's a circle that like spins and I have it in my kitchen. It's my lazy Susan. And it has all of my favorite spices right there and my favorite oils like i cook a lot with olive oil and red wine vinegar and um a reg oh my god i love oregano and um the everyone seasoning or 21 flavors everything seasoning god i love but like those those are the spices that i know okay there's this really good book do I have it here? No, I moved it downstairs. Sorry, I'm, I'm normally I'm sitting at the desk where I keep my books. It is called um, 12 Molecules That Changed the Course of History, also known as Napoleon's Tin Buttons. And in this book, they gave, um, I'm going to butcher it. Is it capsation? Capsation? It's a, it's a hot spice. It's very spicy. And they convinced women in labor to swallow this ball of spice. Okay. You're not convincing me to do anything in labor except get that kid out of my body. Right. But these women signed up for this research study. After the baby was born, they found it present at a molecular level in the placenta. We are literally bathing in the flavors that our mothers ate when they were pregnant. We know those spices, which is funny because I have one kid who loves cheeseburgers and one kid who loves fruit. Guess what I craved when I was pregnant? Also, everybody will eat a pickle, but like I pretty much put on like 30 pounds a piece with pickles, but um, it's just the greatest food ever when you're pregnant. Fried pickles. Have y'all ever had a frickle? A fried pickle. Yeah. <laughs> Rob Bob's looking at me like, uh. <laughs> it's great. It's but those, so delicious. Yes, but like our families know that, so our patients know that. So when you're working with your patients that have a pediatric feeding disorder, or say you have an adult patient, I would seek to understand what spices they have and are familiar with because the evolution of spices and flavor across our lifetime, and this is due to the evolution of the gustatory cortex and then the de-evolution or deterioration due to neurologic deficits of the gustatory cortex. We get them in sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami, and then we lose them in reverse so that for a typically the last flavor we have left is sweet. So are we embracing cultural competence with an evaluation and treatment of dysphagia and PFD according to our spices. That's so sweet, salt, sour, sweet, salt, sour, bitter, wait, sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami, and then backwards. Gulp. I think I got that one from Gulp. Have you ever read that book? No, but it's, 
I need to so look good. into it. Yeah. It's um, Gulp okay, by everybody. Mary Roach. So Michelle, I, I really like how you um, mentioned about the spices. Again, we're not expert in, um, in the patient's culture. So sitting with the family and just making a list of the foods that they eat with their mealtime routine is such a good idea um, to just help the child better. Um, so um, this is what um, I recently did. I was discharging a seven-year-old who is Latina and they were... Um, she was at our sniff since she was a baby and at seven years of age, she was finally going home with mommy and um, she was on this uh, mechanical soft diet and she's a Latina. So um, the mom, me, and there was a translator also. And um, we just sat together. Um, we had Etsy as a reference and we just made a list, a long list of food items that was, um, that was, that they could like the mom could make at home and also at the same time it was part of their um culture and it was not just like spaghetti and meatballs but it was like more on like rice and beans and something like soft tacos like just things like they would eat at home um daily uh with the spices so yeah sometimes um oh we need to make that like take that conscious effort and not just like just be like, um, not just like give like, oh yeah, you're on a soft diet or say puree diet and here, applesauce, you can have applesauce or you can have um, ground meat, ground beef and like chopped up this. Like, I mean, if, if, if it is somebody who's from a Middle Eastern culture, they might not even eat beef. So just making, being mind, mindful of like what, their diet is what their religious beliefs are religion plays such an important role when it comes to food um religion and food also go hand in hand in my opinion but yeah just like being mindful of their religious beliefs their food habits and then incorporating all of it in therapy especially if you're working with somebody who's culturally and linguistically diverse is um is important but see, we yeah. all have like we all have our our different things, and the same with our patients, and the same with treatment. Yes. Okay. All right. So I'm looking at our time, and I'm looking at our questions. Okay. So what about in our sessions? Talk to us about in our sessions. How do we how do we maintain? It's one thing when you're doing like an eval, especially like Rabab. I'm gonna. Um, throw this to you. Like when you're doing your instrumental eval, you're not there long-term with the family, right? It's, it's not like when I'm doing home health sessions and I am immersing myself in this family's home and their culture. So how do we go about being culturally competent for therapy? Yes. Um, so especially in outpatient therapy, when you might see the patient a few times and then they are on their own during the home program, this is where uh, a lot of counseling comes into play. Um, I've also noticed that when you have very motivated caregivers or family members, they are like therapists themselves. Like you just need to like educate them a little and they can like really carry on stuff at home. So they are very consistent with their diet modifications, with making sure exercises are done. Um, 
any kind of PO restrictions, they are pretty much on it. Um, I've also noticed that when I give handouts that are in different languages or with pictures, visual cues especially, you find many of them. I know that if you like Google, you'll find um, a lot of handouts that are translated in different languages. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Even Teachers Pay Teachers, it's one of my favorite sites. They have a lot of uh, culturally um, translated documentation. Um, so that's what I do. I incorporate a lot of education, counseling, um, visual instructions and give it to my patient. And then they usually follow up with that. I've also noticed that, and this is something I'm doing. I know that insurance comes into play and you have to keep it in mind. But when I used to work clinically, just see the patient after a few weeks, just to like make sure they are on the right track before you go for a discharge. Um, I've also, when I used to have the time, and I know that we are all extremely busy, you can always just call, make sure they're doing okay between sessions, they're following restrictions and recommendations, and um, that's pretty helpful. Um, uh, also, sometimes I find other SLPs who I know are very familiar with the cultures. Um, and I talk to them about what foods can be incorporated. Um, something I've also learned about recently is keeping in mind, okay, so just speaking from a South Asian point of view, meal time is a big deal. Like everybody sits together, everybody chats, everyone's eating. If your patient's on a restricted diet, it's it kind of gets difficult and you don't want to lose out on that. Like I wouldn't want my family members to eat without me and then I'm eating my pureed diet on the side. So just make sure you're aware of that. Find recipes, ingredients that work for them and you can always recommend that as well. Um, I ask the caregivers or the patient to always do a session where they get food from home. Um, I'm not finding hummus probably, or um, I don't know. They will at my house. <laughs> yes, I, I have it in my fridge all the time, but am I going to go finding it in the hospital? Probably not. Um, I, I wouldn't have the time for that. But just ask them to get a bunch of things from home and then you test consistencies and then you can recommend that um, and include it in your recommendations as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're uh, working more on the um, speech and language side of it, investing, if you have um, a budget for your therapy materials, just uh, reviewing what all you need and just find ways in which you can diversify the therapy materials. Um, throwing in a mix of like toys with varied skin tones and hair hair textures is just like a place to start with. Um, and and especially um, uh, so like if if the uh, patients from a different culture just like interviewing the family um, on what all um, what all games or like what all things the child enjoys at home that can be bought in the therapy session like sometimes they may have different toys or different games that they um, they're playing at home or they're more familiar with maybe just having 
just incorporating them in the session may help better um, facilitate better carryover of the skills in the home environment. And um, another thing is like nowadays there are so many books that are available which like um, which incorporate characters that are diverse. And it's not just restricted to like culturally divorced, but like, um, again, last time I recommended this book and it's called, I bought um, it. oh, you bought it. Did you, did it ever get delivered? Yes. And I have a pic, wait, tell everybody about this book. I even took a selfie with it because I, and I, you know, I'm happy because my nose crinkled into nothingness. So, um, I came across this book, um, it's it's really interesting how I even found this book. I had this um, five-year-old who would, um, you know how like kids when they're little and they love repetition and they can pretend that they are reading the books uh, because they know the story so well. So um, this little five-year-old would come with this book and she would like read along or pretend to read along. Hi, I'm, hi, I'm Mariah and I'm so many years old. And I'm like, what is this, hi, I'm Mariah? And um, that's how I even came across this book. It's about this little girl who um, who has a tracheostomy, has a ventilator, goes with a peg tube, I believe. Um, she just has this yeah. like brave attitude. And she's in a and wheelchair. A, and she's in a wheelchair. And, um, and just like a good attitude, like positive attitude towards life. And so she was, um, she's really relatable with my kids who are on ventilators and have tracheostomy tubes and peg tubes. Like, yeah, so she's really famous. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, and the kids could relate to her and they just like love how she's able to do things despite having, um, despite being limited in, in a few ways. So yeah, um, just investing in such books is also a good idea because they, they, these these characters are like role models for such children. Like, yeah. So I would say diversifying your material, not just based on um, the toys aspect, but also like books, games is a good idea. And um, yeah. Um, what else? Yeah, so I had also like. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to tell y'all how I flopped in this. Like when I first went into the world of early intervention, like I came from a hospital, right? So y'all, I share my embarrassing stories so that you know that, like, one, I am blatantly not perfect, and two, but I have learned from my mistakes, right? So I came from inpatient, outpatient um, hospital, and it was like rural in Virginia where it was just me, and I treated all the peoples because there was nothing nearby for like 45 minutes in any direction. And then we came to South Carolina and I got into the world of early intervention. And so I was working on this child with um, turn-taking, following directions, and it was more like the pragmatic piece of language. And they were um, Spanish-speaking, and we had... We had the interpreter and so um, we have, we have the interpreter there. And so the activity that I recommended was um, cause you know, he, the little guy had a bunch of siblings was London bridges falling down. Have y'all ever heard of London bridges falling down? I love, yeah. I grew up listening to it. Falling down. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, yes. The family and the interpreter looked at me like I had three heads and I was like, well, what's wrong? Don't you know London Bridge? And then I was like, oh, Michelle, no, they don't. And the interpreter, I love her to pieces. She goes, woman, what are you doing singing that song? And I was like, well, that was one that I grew up with. But it was like in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this great activity because it's going to target like everything that we're doing. And the interpreter was like, how about we teach you one of our songs? And so we did. And, and you know what? It was perfect because the child knew the rhythm. He knew the song. And then we started um, incorporating that into our, our floor time, into our play-based activities. And the mom got engaged. But, you know, it was, it was just in my naive attempt, I didn't know what I didn't know. It was, it was an implicit cultural bias that I was unaware that I was doing and I was trying so hard to do something fun but um <laughs> I, I learned a lot that day also wow we played a lot outside in the front yard and um they had a pecan tree so every once in a while somebody would get beamed in the head with the pecan from the pecan tree <laughs> so like you know but like that's that's part of it but um, seriously, y'all, I would highly recommend Haya Mariah. I've made sure that um, uh, it's it's up on our social media because it is it's brightly colored and it's it it catches the eye. And I also take into account when I'm looking at books the um, the visual imagery for our patients that have a cortical vision impairment. Are we selecting materials that are um, are, are CVI friendly. So, which is why I, I, I like to get, um, there's a really good one book called Yo Yes. Have y'all ever heard of that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yo yes. yes. Yeah. Yo Yes. I love the book Yo Yes, because it has simple words. It's got, um, a lot of yellow and reds in it, which are, uh, it, it, and the images aren't so busy, so it's easier for my patients with a CBI to like focus on it. But it's all about two little boys that become friends. And just through the words, yo, yes, hi, how, who, me, I could like quote the book, but um, that's one of Bear's favorites. So yeah. yeah. Um, okay. It's, it's great. Okay. Um, all right. Bef- we're we're yes, I was gonna say we're running low on time and we have one more question to get to. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Is that okay? Okay, yes, what yeah. about what about teletherapy? Talk to me about cultural oh oh my gosh, I forgot one for home health. Folks, make sure you find out when you walk in the door, where do you wash your shoe where do you take your shoes off? Inside the house, outside the house. And and when you go to wash your hands. Some individuals have the sink for the clean dishes, the side of the sink for the dirty dishes, or you only wash your hands in the bathrooms, or you use paper towels and not the hand towels. These are these are cultural considerations when we're going into the homes that we have to find out and make sure that we're respectful of. That was my last one. Yes. yes. And going off that, just like ask questions. Like, I think it's so easy. If you don't know what to do, make sure you ask instead of doing something and then you're offending someone's culture or making someone uncomfortable so just listen and you'll figure it out yes yes and that's and that's what I do I always say all right what what's what are the rules of the house tell me your rules and and most of the moms start laughing because you know the moms have the rules right and um yes (laughs) I have rules do they always get followed no (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. All right. So talk to me. Um, how do we engage in cultural inclusivity? I can't say the word um, during our teletherapy sessions. So um, as clinicians, we may often rely on the verbal and nonverbal cues um, to overcome the cultural barriers. But when we're like sitting at home and trying to do telehealth, it's it's a little tricky to interpret these like nonverbal cues. So um, coming to ethics wise, the ethics that you're following in person, um, in your clinics, in your practice still remains the same and it gets carried over when you're doing telehealth. But, um, but like just before even like beginning the session or assessment, I would um, totally recommend that just have a questionnaire out and um, be open to interviewing the family. Have an open and honest discussion on what their expectations from therapy are, what um, how culture plays a role in the um, in the child's upbringing, and like just like simple questions related, like it could be like, um, oh, what do you call? What do you pre- what do you like being called? Like, what do you prefer being called? Like, if the child is nonverbal and we're working on communication, um, um, I don't call my mom mom. And like, if I'm a therapist or if I need therapy and someone's forcing me to call mom mom, it's just weird. <laughs> it's just weird. Like, this is um, That's weird. I, yeah, I would love. Yeah, like, um, just see what they prefer. Like, I know. Um, like, um. I know that family when they're um, when a therapist comes in, they don't expect the therapist to teach the child their first language. Like they just want them to maybe learn English and just communicate in the society. But like just a few words, like uh, kinship terms, um, that could be useful in their own language. So just um, just ask family what they um what they want to be called or what they're comfortable with and some things um some things i would say like um in certain cultures um the pragmatics the social rules of their culture uh, may be different from what it is in the american society uh like in my culture growing up um it was looked down upon if the child give eye contact to an elder or if you would talk out of your turn, or like you would talk back. So these are like some things that that are not culturally acceptable. So um, so it doesn't mean that child ha- is low. It doesn't. It didn't mean that I didn't have the right pragmatic or the social skills. It was just my upbringing um, in my Asian culture. So even today, I I I do not like eye contact. It's something I like really, uh, it just gives me anxiety looking into somebody's eyes when you're talking. I'm not being disrespectful by not looking in your eyes. It's just that I am, I. it's just a part of me. Like, yeah. So um, just just be mindful of these, um, these social considerations or cultural considerations. And um, yeah, and again, we don't need to like, I don't know everything about somebody's Filipino culture or somebody's um, Jewish culture, but um, but if 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 but I I as a 
clinician, I'm willing to learn a little bit more and just so that I am doing the best I can for the children. Um, oh, just last thing that I want to add is um, Leslie Edward Gator, Dr. Leslie Edward Gator. She's doing an amazing job um, uh, and she's doing great research in cultural considerations for telehealth. Where do you know where she is? Uh, she she's a professor at Howard University, Howard. I'm 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 doing the Google. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. What Rabab? Oh, I found her. Yep. Okay. Rabab, what do you, what are your recommendations? Yes. Um, taking the risk of sounding a little creepy, I feel like teletherapy gives you the uh, chance to actually look into somebody's home. Like, you know how they function. <laughs> you know what that does sound a little creepy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to. Like, you would find my mom, my South Asian mom coming and giving me fruit in the middle of a Zoom meeting. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I, I cannot eat fruit right now. Uh, but yes, just like to know how they talk to each other, to know how the parent and the child interact. I know that sometimes in a hospital setting or in the outpatient setting, everything's so formal. So just being in that informal setting with them um, gives you a chance to incorporate culturally diverse things into therapy. Um, I also feel like um, there is so much research out there now regarding teletherapy. Like evidence-based practice is the way to go. I know that growing up, um, especially in a diverse country like India, there was a myth in the speech-language pathology world that focused on one language at a time in a child with a language delay. And I was like, now that I read about it and when I got... Um, when I was not a very young undergrad student, I realized that there's so many myths out there that we need to bust. And the only way to do that is read research. And I know that as a clinician, like it, it's so busy sitting and reading research is one more thing on your plate, but there are so many things you can do, like follow Instagram pages. Wow. Like there are bilingual SLPs who really take an effort and put information out there, uh, follow like one journal and the ASHA portal. Um, and I cannot stress this enough because I feel, well, some people say I have an accent. I don't know what they're talking about, but uh, we do sometimes say that I pronounce words differently and you have to keep in mind that that is a difference and not a disorder. Um, Asha has a portal where they've compiled a phonemic system for a couple of languages, and you can use that to differentiate between dialect disorder or a difference. And you don't want to misdiagnose a child just because he doesn't speak the way you speak or the way individuals in the United States of America speak. Um, also, when practicing virtually, you can build a relationship with your client. Use like virtual stickers, maybe some kind of reinforcement, watch a fun video together. And just like Kinnery and you were talking about the book, Hi, I'm Maria, you can find videos online that uh, are culturally relevant and relevant to the child's disorder as well and share that with them. Um, Again, I don't think I, as a PhD student, again, I am going to say this, evidence-based practice is the way to go. Um, 
I, I am a very strong adult medical SLP, but I have a friend who researches in bilingualism in um, the pediatric population, and it will blow your mind. Like just simple things like talk to them in two languages. Um, there is so much education and strategies out there that can make such a big difference. And just knowing that one strategy can change your session so just look into it, educate yourself. We, we all have to complete CEUs, find CEUs that work for you and the population you are seeing. And yeah, we can help our patient and our patients are primary goal. So that's definitely something that we should be doing. Yes. So, so much joy to be had here. Okay, folks, there's, um, we had Madeline Ratz from Australia on I want to say she came on in December because I remember it being wicked cold outside when she came on to, for an episode. And, um, but her whole, her PhD, and I want to say it's at the University of Queensland is where she's studying, if memory serves correct. Um, if I'm wrong, I apologize. Go check out the episode. Um, is on teletherapy for PFD, evaluation and treatment for PFD. And they have a, plethora of resources for how to do teletherapy and and even culturally competent teletherapy from a um how to ask questions i mean it's just oh my gosh there's so much but one of the things i have found is that uh access to devices here in the states access to solid internet connection for some of our rural folks is is problematic i live in downtown Columbia, which is in greater Richland County, South Carolina. However, the fiber optic networks and just a couple of miles down the street from our, it goes from city to rural like that. Well, they have a whole initiative to get strong internet connection to um, uh, lower, lower South what is it? Lower southeastern, lower Richland County, because having simply having access to to functional services is to hold a teletherapy session can be difficult. So you may need to work with your state associations or your and 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 not just your speech pathology association, but also your um, like your state early intervention system or your school systems to make sure that. Um, individuals can connect or they have access to devices because I know for the boys school, they, um, they're at a charter school, Mandarin immersion charter school. They come home, they're talking in Mandarin and I don't know what they're saying. And I know that they're talking about us, um, because they've, they've gotten really good with talking about us in Mandarin, but that's a conversation for like parenting skills. Um, however, they sent home tablets and computers when the pandemic broke they reallocated funds away from playground equipment to make sure that everybody had access. And some of the local school districts went out and they set up um, like, I don't know, Wi-Fi computer thingies that make the internet available to people. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? I, I don't know. It's, it's a device. Yes. Um, another cultural conversation for teletherapy that I would um, strongly recommend is um, 
not everybody, and this could just be an age generational thing, not everybody is comfortable with tech. So you need to find out, do they simply know how to work their devices? Do they know how to recover when there is a technical glitch coming? Um, so I would recommend that. And then some of my favorite resources, you talked about following folks on social media. Um, yes, trust, verify, because some of the stuff I see on the land of Instagram is like, oof, that is awful. But I mean, like the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, the Dysphagia Outreach Project, Feeding Matters. I mean, ASHA puts good stuff out there. And so I would I would follow them. And y'all, we have resources. So reach out and um, what is it? The I have the app for it. Dun, dun, dun. ASHA community, ask questions there. Oh, yes. And Kinnery and I are always here to help out. We are learning something new every day. And just like email us, message us, and we will help you figure something out. Perfect. Okay. How can they reach you? Because we have to switch to questions. How do they reach you? Made in India SP. That's a podcast we run and we focus a lot on speech language pathology in India and the cultural impacts of that in the Indian population. So that's something that we put out resources that are culturally significant and diverse. Just find us on Instagram and Facebook and message us and I will help you find a solution for any problem. If if I don't have it, I can always help you find someone who has the answer. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Slide into DMs. <laughs> Slide into DMs. Oh my God, I'm so old. That sounds so weird. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you slid into our DM. That's how you found us. <laughs> but like, yeah, but see, in Michelle Land, that was just like, oh, I like this. This is amazing. I'll just send them a message. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, 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 hey.